And do you know how many people would probably like run away at the sight of dismembered legs? Yeah. Dude, there's a four foot bong and a bag of weed by your bed. <laughs> Jelly Wings, the parlor game for nerds, is nearing extinction. It's in my pod! It's in my pod! <laughs> I will find proof. <laughs> I'm very easily startled, Mr. Finkelman. I don't know which regulation body would regulate the uh, penis ring that you were talking about earlier. (laughs) I'm ready to remain conscious as we record this show. Hey, welcome to Medical Stuff. My name is Mark. I can't hear a thing, Frankum. And that is Chris. What'd you say? Finkston over there. How you doing, man? I am doing fantastic, Mark. How are you today? I'm doing good. I feel like uh, these nicknames are a little familiar, like there's a theme or something that's maybe persisting from a previous episode. What? Chris? I said I feel like these nicknames are a little familiar, like there's a theme or something maybe persisting from a previous episode. What? Oh, God, you are so <laughs> fucking funny. <laughs> So this evening we are continuing our conversation about hearing disorders and uh, not being able to hear stuff. <laughs> uh, oh, good. I think after that joke, you really have to keep in that part about the frustration of being friends with me. Mark? <laughs> hey, Mark. I'm just going to keep talking. So anyway, Meniere's de- disease. <laughs> you may you may legitimately not be able to hear me, but I'm just going to keep rolling with it now. I can't back down from this. Mm. Chris? <laughs> Chris? I think I've lost Chris. This isn't going to be the hey, full Mark, show. Hey, Mark, if you can hear me, can you just check your phone really quick? I'm trying to text you. Yeah, sure. I have to look at it, though, because my uh, ringtone is turned down. Because I always no have way. a feeling as though you can hear me and I just can't hear you. I'm not sure if you're mocking me yet or not, but I know you well enough to know that if you can't hear me, it's a, you are definitely mocking me. And that is what's going to be going on. Because can you hear me let's now? just put it this way that I mocked you Chris? the last time this happened. <laughs> Chris? Hey, Mark. Yeah? I can hear you the whole time. Gotcha, Max. <laughs> you son of a bitch. All right. <laughs> yes, All right. that's good listening right there. There you go. Let's <laughs> I think the best part is when I leave that in, people are going to be listening to me like, oh, Chris fucked up the editing again. That's what that's what happened here. <laughs> well, no, I think that if we're going to leave that in, you also have to leave in the uh, frustration of being my friend. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, definitely. Definitely. You know, yes. Yes. There is a price you pay for hanging out with me, and it's usually frustration and irritation. Actually, I'll just go. We'll just go ahead and do that bit now. Uh, so here's the thing about Mark, and this is why I love Mark as a friend. Most friends are content to stay on the joy end of the emotional spectrum. You know, they everything's are great. Yeah, everything's great. They're there for fun. Mark is like, fuck it. I'm going to cover this entire spectrum the best I can. You're going to be everywhere from arousal uh, all the way to um, anguish and frustration to pure hatred. That's going to come up there. And you might laugh while you're doing it. But basically, Mark is the gone with the wind of friendships. It's just it's longer than it needs to be. It's probably going to end in heartbreak. But there's going to be a lot to pay attention to along the way. You're going to be all over the place. And you're probably going to end up enjoying the ride. Absolutely. So anyway, hearing disorders, 
That's mm, Meniere's disease. Yeah. So or Meniere's disease, if you want to go with the, uh, you know, Guillaume Beret version of it. Yeah. So, ooh. Yeah. So, mm. in our last episode, we did, we, uh, we did uh, the first half of this. And I guess I could. <laughs> nice recap. Yeah. That's it. And uh, we, we talked about the anatomy of the ear, how you got just like the external ear. And then you've got, that's like the ear lobe and the shit you can see. And then you've got the ear canal and that ends in the ear drum, which is just like, what did I describe it as? I'm like, you know, the thing that makes a drum a drum. And you're like the drum skin. Um, anyway. <laughs> and then, yeah. And then there's some bones behind that that actually conduct sound uh, to your brain. So, and of course, apparently, because there's a stirrup and a saddle. There is, and there is. And an anvil as well, isn't there? Yes. Yeah. That's yeah. how you make the stirrups. Well, basically, basically, there's a blacksmith in there making horseshoes. Right. Um, well, yeah, because you have a horse, so you need horseshoes. Otherwise, it's not fair to the horse. Well, of course, you have a horse. <laughs> Horsey horse. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, Meniere's disease. <laughs> so, Meniere's disease is a disorder of the inner ear that can lead to dizzy spells, also known as vertigo and hearing loss. In most cases, Meniere's disease only affects one ear. So, Meniere's disease can occur at any age, uh, but it usually starts between young and middle-aged adulthood. It is considered a chronic condition, but various treatments can help relieve the symptoms and minimize the long-term impact uh, on your life. Now, if you recall in our previous episode, we did talk about how there are structures in the ear that are, res- that are filled with fluid that are responsible uh, for your balance. Question? Uh, Mark. Um, so if you have vertigo and it stops, is it now vertigon? <laughs> I don't know why I laughed so much harder at kind of the stupid jokes than anything else. <laughs> I think that happened the moment like Emmett was born. It was like, you will now laugh harder at oh, dumb jokes. Once you get a child, the dad jokes become much funnier. And the thing I love about yeah. kids is I am the funniest motherfucker in their lives. Like, it doesn't matter like what I say. There's like, man, my dad is funny. Yeah, am- but. Let's be honest. You don't know many people. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, they, they yeah. I am their only source of information. <laughs> and I've gotten less funny as they've gone to school, which bothers me because my competition is just like other kindergartners oh, yeah. and first graders. Yeah. So, where are the causes here, man? Yeah, so the causes of Meniere's disease aren't known. Uh, so, symptoms of Meniere's disease appear <laughs> to be... <laughs> right? <laughs> Uh, the symptoms of oh, the, real quick, real quick. Did we cover the age range? Starts usually, yeah, yeah, young, young adults. adults. Okay, yeah, yeah. No, we got that mark. Welcome to the I show. I was focusing on my vertigon joke. I really wasn't listening. Yeah, well, you know what? But <laughs> I don't blame you. Good, good call, sir. Uh, <laughs> good humor takes effort. So, oh yeah. <laughs> so anyway, uh, the symptoms uh, we believe though they are a result of an abnormal amount of fluid. Hi. Also known as uh, endolymph fluid in the inner ear, but it isn't clear what causes that to happen. So factors that affect the fluid, which might contribute to Meniere's disease, include uh, improper fluid drainage because uh, there's like a blockage or uh, an anatomic abnormality, uh, an abnormal immune response, a viral infection, uh, genetic predisposition. Uh, but because there's no single cause that's been identified, it's pretty likely that Meniere's disease results from a combination of those factors. So, complications, as if that wasn't enough already. The unpredictable episodes of vertigo and the prospect of permanent hearing loss can be the most difficult problems when it comes to uh, Meniere's disease. So, uh, it can unexpectedly interrupt your life, causing fatigue and stress. So, vertigo can cause you to lose balance, increasing your risk of falls and accidents as well. And we see this a lot in the elderly. Right. Where... 
the falls just, I mean, people fall at all ages, but as you get age, uh, the, the possibility of having severe outcomes because of that fall increase. So vertigo, you know, probably should be treated fairly aggressively in the elderly just to keep that to a minimum. Right. Right. So, uh, doctors or (laughs) (laughs) diagnosis, you know what, Mark, maybe I should tap in at this point. Uh, your doctor will has diagnoses or diagnoses or diagnosi. Diagnosi. I want to say it. Diagnosi. Like a flock of diagnosi. It sounds like a dinosaur, <laughs> like an official name for a dinosaur. Like everyone's like, Velociraptor. And someone's like, yeah. no, actually, that's a predatoriness diagnosi. And you're like, yes. oh, wow. <laughs> uh, fun fact, the velociraptors <laughs> you see in Jurassic Park are not actually modeled off uh, velociraptors. They are modeled off of something called, I believe it's called a diagnesius, which is a type of raptor. But the velociraptor is actually the size of a chicken and looks nothing like what you see in the movie Jurassic Park. Which would be a lot less intimidating in the movie. Could you imagine that? Though? Well, I don't know. It depends. Are you a fan of your ankles, Mark? Yeah, but I mean, if you can punt your competitor. That's true. That's you true. Know, I mean, that being said, Jurassic Park did make, uh, there's these little tiny dinosaurs. I don't remember what they're called, but I want to say it's Jurassic Little floppy-eared things that spit stuff. No, th- th- those things were freaky. But in the third <laughs> one, there's these ones that are maybe the size of like pigeons. They're tiny but they swarm people and just pick the skin off their bones. All right. So diagnosis. <laughs> Back to hearing disorders. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which technically that would be a hearing disorder when they pick the skin off your ears. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, your doctor will conduct an exam and take a medical history. A diagnosis of Meniere's disease requires two episodes of vertigo, each lasting 20 minutes or longer, but no longer than 12 hours. Uh, hearing loss verified by hearing test, tinnitus, or the feeling of fullness in your ear. What I hate is when I eat to the point where my ears are full. Mm, yeah, yeah, that is terrible. Dude. Well, yeah. it depends on what you're eating, though. Like, if you're Good eating point. Rice Krispie Treats, it might be kind of enjoyable. Oh, yeah, but you have to hear the snap, crackle, and pop all day long. Yeah, but I like it. Lulls me to sleep. <laughs> it's like the ASMR stuff people listen to now. There you go. <laughs> I had to look that up. I just heard about that recently. Yeah, it actually annoys the shit out of me. I can't stand it. <laughs> Some people find it, like, soothing. I find it. I, I, I curse the fact Not- that I have eardrums. <laughs> And then exclusion of all the other known causes or problems. Uh, hearing assessments. A hearing test or an audio, uh, audiometry assesses how well you detect sounds at different pitches and volumes, as well as how well you distinguish between similar sounding sounds. People with Meniere's disease typically have problems hearing low frequencies or combined high and low frequencies with normal hearing in the mid-ranges. Hmm. Yeah. They're also going to give you a balance test. Which, in my mind, just involves a doctor pushing you. <laughs> so, we're going to administer a balance test. Boop. Yeah, apparently <laughs> not, not very good up. balance. Failed that one. Uh, between episodes of Vertigo, I guess it wouldn't be fair to do it during the episode of Vertigo. Uh, the sense of balance returns to normal, but for most people with Meniere's, uh, for most people with Meniere's disease. But you might have some, of the, uh, some ongoing balance problems. Tests that uh, assess function of the inner ear include, Chris... Well, the tests that assess function of the internet do include, fuck you, uh, video nystagmograph. <laughs> video nystagmograph. Oh, no, no, no. Yes. I got this. Like, don't, don't, take, don't take my thunder. I had that. Maybe I didn't. Video nystagmography. Yeah, that's not yeah. hard. Video nystagmography. 
was it was a lot less worse than it looked. Yeah, uh, yeah, it is. Yeah, but uh, thank God, VNG is the other name for it. Uh, so Not to be confused with the Ving Rames, right? Very true. He has a beautiful voice. Or NVGs, night vision goggles. Anyway, so go. this test evaluates balance function by assessing eye movement. Balance related sensors in the inner ear are linked to muscles that control eye movement. Funnily enough. And this connection enables you to move your head while keeping your eyes focused on one point. Uh, rotary chair testing. Hmm. I swear to God, my picture was just a doctor spinning around in an office chair. That is exactly. I'm actually, I, I want to read this because I want to see if I'm right or wrong here. So like a VNG, this measures inner ear function based on eye movement. You sit in a computer controlled rotating chair. Already awesome. I'm into this, uh, which stimulates your inner ear. And that's it. That's wow. (laughs) I feel like I could, I mean, like, honestly, like, give me like a lawnmower motor and uh, my (laughs) office chair that I'm sitting in, and I think I can uh, make you some medical equipment. (laughs) Could you imagine, like, you walk in there and the doctor's like, sit in this chair, and it's a fucking pull start? Like, he's sitting there. He's in the primary. He's like yanking on the chain. Let's say prime the engine, push on a little bubble three times. Yeah, you know? look, ma'am, sorry. There's no control on this thing. It's pretty much on or off. So just hang on to the armrest really quick. Well, I mean, that's not entirely true. We have hair or tortoise. Which would you like today? <laughs> <laughs> Tell you what, we're going to start out with hair and see how you feel. Maybe we'll upgrade to tortoise after. What? Why does this chair have a mulch switch? Why does it go from mulch to bag? Why is that a thing? They're doing a. <laughs> hey, actually, he's we're going to do this test. Ear test and mulching his leaves from the yard <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> Next up is vestibular evoked myogenic potentials, or VEMP, or VEMP testing. Uh, this test shows promise uh, for not only diagnosing, but also monitoring uh, Meniere's disease. So it shows characteristic changes in the affected ears of people with Meniere's disease. There you go. Sorry, Jan. Anyway, okay. uh, posture graphy. This Let's co- hope our listenership's a little more riveted by this information. I know. Just nailing it. <laughs> uh, posturography. This computerized test reveals which part of the balance system, whether it's vision, uh, inner ear, or sensations from the skin, muscle tendons, uh, or joints, uh, you rely on the most, and which parts may cause problems. So while wearing a safety harness, thankfully, you stand uh, on your bare feet, in a platform on a platform and keep your balance under various conditions. That seems like it's a lot of fun. That actually seems mm-hmm. like it would be a Nickelodeon like game show. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like uh, oh, the, yeah. if you fall, you get slimed, you know, like that. Kind or of stuff. one of those, um, one of those Japanese game shows. Oh yeah. I know what you're talking about. Like, uh, what was it? What was it called? Well, there's Ninja oh, Warrior not, is one of the big ones, but I know, I know the one you're no, thinking no, no, of. No, I'm talking about the game shows where they have to like climb up the hill naked. That's been lubed and it's, they're rolling balls down the hill at them. What kind of websites are you visiting? <laughs> <laughs> I don't No, um, or what was that one with, uh, the, oh, what was his name? Henson, where they have the really goofy, ex, uh, extreme obstacle course. Oh, uh, Wipeout. Yes. Wipeout so that sounds like good. something like there. You have to stand on there and it would just like. Pretty sure that's all it is. Pretty yeah. sure that's what that test is. All right. So, uh, <laughs> video head impulse test, also known as V hit. Uh, this really new swing at you. You try and dodge it. So I'm just curious. Did you research these acronyms or did you come up with these? No, 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 no. These are all. God, I wish research. you would have come up with these. Anyway, mm. uh, V hit. Uh, so this newer test uses a video to measure eye reactions to abrupt movement. While you focus on a point, your head is turned quickly and unpredictably. If your eyes move off the target, when your head is turned, 
you may have an abnormal reflex. Um, hmm. Yeah. Electrocochleography, uh, or ECOG. Uh, this test looks at the <laughs> inner ear in response to sounds. Uh, it might help to determine if there is an abnormal buildup of fluid in the inner ear, uh, but it's actually not specific to Meniere's disease. So there are some tests to rule out some other conditions. So blood tests and imaging scans like an MRI might be used to rule out disorders that can cause problems similar to those of Meniere's disease, like a tumor in the brain or multiple, uh, <clears throat> multiple sclerosis. Oh, yeah. yeah. Or multiple sclerosis. Uh, treatment, there's no cure that exists for Meniere's disease. There is a number of treatments that can help reduce the severity and the frequency of vertigo episodes, but sadly, there's not any uh, treatment for the hearing loss. So that sucks. I mean, you can get like a hearing aid, of course, but... Uh, for a cochlear implant, which we're going to get into. <clears throat> there you go. So medications for vertigo. Your doctor may prescribe medication to take during a vertigo episode to lessen the severity uh, of an attack. <sighs> Motion sickness medication, oh, yeah. such as meclizine or diazepam, mm. may reduce the spitting sensation and help control nausea and vomiting. Anti-nausea medications, such as promethazine, which uh, might control the nausea and vomiting during the episode of vertigo. Now, one uh, of these, long-term medic. Go ahead. Uh, one of the things you have to understand, though, is whenever you take an oral medication, there's an onset, and most oral medication onsets are usually the 20 minute to 30 minute range if it's a quick one. And depending mm -hmm. on how long your vertigo episode lasts, you may be kicking in by the time it's done. Right. Um, but so, yeah, this is not a fun disease. Not that there's a lot of fun ones out there, but um, <laughs> I think the thing that bothers me the most about this disease so far is that it kind of has an ability to randomly just kind of fuck your life in terms of like the mm -hmm. vertigo. Uh, I have been on patients who uh, are first time vertigo experiencers. And uh, it's it's a deal. Like I've got on people who are just grabbing the ground, like trying not to fall off the earth. Their vertigo mm -hmm. is so bad. And so this disease, it's kind of funny because I think if you look at it at a surface level, it almost seems like maybe, all right, so you get some vertigo and some hearing loss, but hey, it's not cancer. Uh, but one of the things that you might want to consider is that this can really interrupt your life in, in a big well, way and at if random. You're, if you're driving when it hits. Oh, God. Yeah, that would be terrible. Or what if you're like a high wire act? Good point. Yeah. yeah. You have to hang up your shoes. A, fl a flying Walinda. I mean, you're in mid-flight when you're trying to grab onto somebody else's hands whenever you uh, all of a sudden get hit with a vertigo. I like how I try to get real and try to get serious for a moment, and then I just can't <laughs> keep it. I just gotta just be like, what if you're a high wire artist? But still, I mean, I am serious. This does sound like a terrible disease. Anyway, uh, hey, Mark, take it away at the long-term medication use. Uh, long-term medication use. You may doctor prescribe a medication to reduce fluid retention, such as a diuretic. Suggest you limit your intake of salt. And for some people, this combination helps to control the severity and frequency of Meniere's disease symptoms. Uh, there's non-invasive procedures. Uh, some people with Meniere's disease may benefit from non-invasive therapies such as rehabilitation. Uh, okay. <laughs> so I just pictured uh, Mike, Mark Wahlberg from TED 2 where uh, they're getting high with their lawyer. Have you seen that movie? Uh, which movie? Uh, TED 2. With the, the no, no, no. Have. I've seen Ted, but I never saw the second one. So they're getting high and they're like, what's this pot called? And she's like, it's a, uh, I might need some help home. <laughs> right? And they're sitting there smoking. And a couple minutes later, Mark Wahlberg is gripping onto the wall as tight as he can going, guys, I'm going to need some help getting home. 
And then they show him outside and he's just like, you know, spider crawling along this uh, brick wall outside this building trying to get home as they're talking him along. <laughs> so rehabilitation, that's what I had in mind was just hold on to the building as tight as possible. So <clears throat> if you have balance problems between episodes of Vertigo, vestibular rehabilita- rehabilitation therapy might improve your balance. Uh, a hearing aid, a hearing aid in the affected ear might pr- improve your hearing. Your doctor can refer you to an audiologist to discuss what hearing aid options would be best for you. Uh, positive pressure therapy, <laughs> which I just imagine is them clapping your both sides, boxing your ears. Uh, for vertigo, that's hard to treat. This therapy inclu- includes uh, applying pressure to the middle ear to lessen bu- uh, fluid buildup. A device called a minette pulse generator applies pressure to the ear to the... Um, let me start that over. A device called a magnetic pulse, uh, pulse generator applies pulses of pressure to the ear canal through a ventilation tube. You do the treatment at home, usually three times a day for five minutes at a time. Wow. Positive pressure therapy has shown improvement in symptoms of vertigo, tinnitus, and oral pressures in some studies, but not in others. So they haven't really figured out if this is something that's going to be good in the long term. If... Uh, if the conservative treatments listed above aren't successful, you may move on to the uh, more aggressive treatments, like middle ear injections. That just sounds unpleasant. Yeah. So uh, medications ejected into the middle ear and then absorbed into the inner ear may improve vertigo symptoms. This treatment is done in the doctor's office, and injections available include uh, gentamicin, which is an antibiotic that is toxic to your inner ear. That doesn't sound good. Reduces the balancing function of your ear. And your ear assumes a responsibility for the balance. There is a risk, however, including further hearing loss. So, yeah, this is uh, definitely much more aggressive treatments. Antibiotic is toxic to your inner ear, reduces the balance of, reduces the balance, balancing function of your ear, and your ear assumes response. Your other ear. Oh, God, I missed a whole word in there. Your other ear assumes. So, your other ear takes over the job. Okay. Okay. That sounds better. Uh, steroids such as dexamethasone may help you control vertigo attacks in some people. Although dexamethasone may be slightly less effective than gentamicin, it's less likely that gentamicin to, uh, is ge- less likely than gentamicin to cause further hearing loss. Okay. So let's go with steroids first, doc. Uh, surgery. If surgery attack or vertigo attacks associated with Meniere's disease are severe and debilitating, other treatment and other treatments don't help. Surgery might be an option. You have the uh, end, uh, endolymphatic sac procedure, or ESP. Uh, the ESP uh, plays a role in regulating inner ear fluids. Oh no! Wait, this this the endolymphatic sac plays a role in regulating inner ear fluids during the procedure. The sac is decompressed, which can alleviate <laughs> excess fluids, like like having your dog's anal glands reduced, you know, released. Probably a little bit more intense, though. Uh, in some cases, this procedure is coupled with the placement of a shunt uh, and a tube that drains excess fluid from your inner ear. Uh, a labyrinthectomy, that's where uh, you're in the Triwizard Cup, and they have to come get you out of it. It's a labyrinthectomy at the very end. Uh, with this procedure, the surgeon removes the balance portion of the inner ear, thereby removing both balance and hearing function from the affected ear. This procedure is performed only if you have a near total or total hearing loss in your affected ear. So I guess this is probably just like the uh, gentamicin where that will then force the um, other ear to take over all functions. 
And then uh, there's also a vestibular nerve section. This procedure involves cutting the nerve that connects balance and movement sensations in the ear, inner ear to the brain, the vestibular nerve. This procedure usually corrects problems with vertigo while attempting to preserve hearing in the affected ear. It requires general anesthesia and an overnight stay in the hospital. Hmm. So yeah, that's Meniere's disease. Sounds like it can get very, very hectic. Hectic sounds, indeed. Basically a drug that kills the ear that's affected. Oh shit. Yeah, just some of the procedures they do. Like one of them is they um, remove the balance portion of the inner ear. Oh, well, that'll do it. I told him that the labyrinthectomy was actually in uh, the Triwizard Cup where they come get you out of the labyrinth. <laughs> or they come get you from the Troll King if you want to go old school. But that's probably before your time. Wait, what was it again? Uh, where they come get you from the Troll, clean, troll King. Troll King. Uh, is this a never-ending story thing? No. No. Strangely enough, the labyrinthectomy reference was to a movie called Labyrinth. Uh, that I know, and I've actually seen Labyrinth, but I'm not. Oh, yeah. Isn't David Bowie's part the Troll King? Yeah, I, did. I saw it a long time ago. The parts I remember is there's a part where a boulder appears to be chasing them down one part, and then they hide from it, and they pop back out, and there's just like two guys behind it peddling it. Hmm. Okay. Anyway. That or I'm remembering the wrong movie, which is plausible. Mildly, imp- uh, mildly possible? Uh, I would not say mildly. I'd say significantly. <laughs> uh, Goblin King. Damn it. Ah, I just lost nerd points. Yes. I lost nerd points. Damn it. He's the Goblin yes. King. Yes. It's kind of hard for you to lose nerd points. It's kind of like an <laughs> apple you losing apple points. You know? <laughs> uh, hey, at least I nailed the Triwizard Cup one. You know, yeah, congratulations, save man. Yeah, yeah, save a little bit of face there. Anyway, let's uh, let's move beyond this uh, unimportant part of the podcast and uh, cochlear implants, Chris. Boom, cochlear implant. So a cochlear implant is a small, complex electronic device that can help to provide a sense of sound to a person who is profoundly deaf or severely hard of hearing. Remember, in our last episode, we talked about the different levels of deaf and profoundly deaf is the highest level of deafness. And that is where uh, you can pretty much can't hear at all. Right. So the implant consists of an external portion that sits behind the ear and a second portion that is surgically placed under the skin. Uh, an implant has the following parts. First off, it has a microphone. Whoops. Speaking of microphones, it just bumped mine. Yeah. Uh, anyway. <laughs> so first off, it has a microphone. To, to prove the physical appearance of microphones, Chris <laughs> has taken it upon himself to show that he has one. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so yeah, the microphone, which picks up sound from the environment. Go fucking figure. Uh, a speech processor, which selects and arranges sounds picked up by the microphone. A transmitter and receiver slash stimulator, which receives signals from the speech processor and then converts them to electronic impulses. And then there's an electrode array, obviously, uh, which is a group of electrodes that collects the impulses from the stimulator and send them, sends them to different regions of the auditory nerve. So an implant does not restore normal hearing. Uh, that's a common misconception. Instead, it can give a deaf person a useful representation of sounds in the environment to help them understand speech. So how does a cochlear implant work? Well, uh, it's very different from like a hearing aid. So hearing aids, 
simply amplify sound so that they may be detected by damaged ears. A cochlear implant is going to bypass those damaged portions of the ear and directly, directly stimulate the auditory nerve. Signals generated by the implants are sent by way of the auditory nerve to the brain, which recognizes the signals as sound. So hearing through a cochlear <coughs> implant is different from normal hearing, and it takes time to learn or rather relearn. However, it also uh, it, it allows many people to recognize warning signals, uh, understand other sounds in the environment, and understand uh, speech in person or over the telephone. Like warning signals, we're talking about like if you've ever been to a crosswalk where it says "Don't walk" or it has a beeping tone until it's good to go. Um, <clears throat> that's where cochlear implants can be very helpful. So right, and it's you know when they are well, something I did on it. The problem is is that. Uh, it's the processor, the sound processor. It's never going to, as of right now, it doesn't match the ability of the brain to interpret sound. Absolutely. If it was one of those and new so, AMD processors, maybe. Right. But uh, for all my nerds. Or an i9. You know. <laughs> Actually, that is, I have a, uh, I, never mind. Never mind. There's, <laughs> there's a lot of nerds out there that I know that listen to this show that are probably going to get their rocks off on that joke. Uh, but <laughs> Oh, come on. Throw it not out enough. there. Oh, I wasn't even a joke. I was just going to brag oh. about the processor I have in mind. <laughs> so who are we going to give cochlear implants to you it's like oprah you get a cochlear implant you get a cochlear <laughs> implant. You get a yeah so who are we gonna give cochlear implants to mark and i nobody we're not qualified but mm -mm. there might be doctors that are going to give them to children and adults who are deaf or severely hard of hearing uh, they can get cochlear implants uh and as of december of 2012 uh, approximately 324,200 registered devices have been implanted worldwide. In well, now, I tried to find updated numbers in those. And they're, uh, I Hey, good job, 15. man. Seven years ago. Really close. <laughs> Dude, I tried, man. I tried. Yeah. The only thing I could find out for comparison was between 2010 and 2012. Mm. They almost doubled, doubled the number of cochlear implants. Gotcha. Did you Google excuses for failure while you were at it, <laughs> while you were researching? <laughs> no, I was too busy researching. Just, yeah, right. Sure. Uh, anyway... <laughs> Uh, I'm just joking. All right. So uh, in the United States, roughly 58,000 devices have been implanted in adults and 38,000 in children. Estimates are provided by the USDA, or I'm sorry, the United States FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, as reported by cochlear implant manufacturers. So the mm -hmm. FDA first approved cochlear implants in the mid 80s uh, to treat hearing loss in adults. However, known as known as big coke. What's that? <laughs> Known as Big Coke. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sure. Can you trust the numbers of Big Coke? You're just a Big Coke show. Oh, God. There, Chris. All the different things that could possibly come out of that reference. <laughs> so since 2000, yeah, uh, cochlear implants have been FDA approved for use in eligible children beginning at 12 months of age. So for young children who are <sighs> sleepy. Uh, who are deaf or severely... <laughs> no, no, we've heard your child is not sleeping. <laughs> uh, for young children who are deaf or severely hard of hearing, uh, using a cochlear implant while they are young exposes them to sounds during an optimal period to develop speech and language skills. Research has shown that when these children receive a cochlear implant followed by intensive therapy before they're 18 months old, they are better able to hear, comprehend sound and music, and speak than their peers who receive implants when they are older. Studies have also shown that eligible children who receive a cochlear implant before 18 months of age develop language skills at a rate comparable to children with normal hearing, and many succeed in mainstream classrooms. 
Did you see the uh, picture of the guy on Facebook who had a tattoo of a cochlear implant put on so his daughter wouldn't feel awkward? Oh, no, I did not see that. Yeah, he had a tattoo on the side of his head to, so he'd be the same as her. No. Oh. So there would be somebody else. What, I a, it was well, cool. what a sweet guy. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> should I get a cochlear implant of a, or a, damn it, never mind. <laughs> so some adults have lost all or most of their hearing later in life. Almost sounds like Gollum in the background there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, some, some adults, adults who have lost all. <laughs> so some adults who have lost all or most of their hearing later in life can also benefit from cochlear implants. They learn to associate the signals from the implant with sounds that they can remember, including speech, without requiring any visual cues such as those provided by lip reading or sign language. How does someone receive a cochlear implant, you ask? Well, good. We have the answer. Use of a cochlear implant requires both a surgical procedure and significant therapy to learn or relearn the sense of hearing. And not everyone is going to perform at the same level with this device. The decision to receive an implant should involve discussions with medical specialists, including an experienced cochlear implant surgeon. The process can be... Eh, I prefer to go with an inexperienced one. Well, right. You don't want to overpay just for the experience. No. I mean, really. Yeah. And learning on the fly is a valuable thing, you know, on the job training. You know, and these days it's pretty much plug and play. <laughs> pretty much you just you pull out your old ear and you plug a new one mm -hmm. right into the port that's it right yeah anyway usb <clears throat> connection <laughs> yeah it's usb c these days it's everything's easy <laughs> if you use you can't even plug it in the wrong way so it goes in it's right. it you know really well because if you plug it in the old ones the wrong way everybody speaks backwards yeah absolutely and that's and then you listen <laughs> to kiss albums which makes you worship satan because all you can hear is anyway <laughs> so, right. So the process can be expensive. For example, person's health insurance may cover the expense, but not always. Uh, some individuals may choose not to have a cochlear implant for a variety of personal reasons. Uh, surgical implants are usually safe, but complications are always a risk factor. Uh, just like real quick, one th real quick, one thing I was reading about mm -hmm. was there's actually some blowback from the deaf community about cochlear implants. Implants, really. Because uh, there are a subsection of deaf people who feel that it is, uh, how'd they put it? They're, it'll affect, basically, the, it, it'll affect your their people's identity as a deaf person. Well, identity is important to people. Will, and, and diminish you know, their, their identity as a deaf person by using cochlear implants. Right. Well, I wonder also if it's you're no longer really part of the deaf. They feel not really part of the deaf community, but they're still also not part of the hearing community. Oh, yeah, that's very true. Kind of. Yeah. You know. Anyway, so uh, surgical implantations are usually safe, but complications are always a risk factor. And that is true with any kind of surgery. So in addition, uh, sorry, an additional consideration is learning to interpret the sounds created by an implant. Because, again, this is not like normal hearing. It is a essentially a little machine that sends electrical impulses to the auditory nerve that allows you to get some sense of a sound, but it's not a restoration of normal hearing. So this process takes time and practice. Speech language pathologists and audiologists are frequently involved in this learning process. So there are some risks, Mark, aren't there? There are. Uh, you can have loss of residual hearing if you do have any hearing at all. Implantation of the device might damage any remaining ability to hear in that ear. Now... They're bypassing that part that's damaged, so you will have, unless there's some damage done to the auditory nerve, it just won't be the same. You know, you're not going to get the kind of the mix of the two. Uh, inflammation of the membranes surrounding the brain and spinal cord, meningitis, uh, following a cochlear implant surgery in children, vaccinations to prevent meningitis are generally given before implementation. 
and uh, occasionally the surgery uh, to repair. Okay, then sometimes you have to go back and repair a faulty device. So something went wrong with the one you have, and now you have to go back in for the surgery a second time. They can rarely, uh, risks can include facial paralysis because they are monkeying with the facial nerves. <laughs> uh, infection at the surgery site. What was that? Well, I said, <laughs> my monkey sound. Oh. <laughs> <clears throat> don't pretend you don't know me. <laughs> I just never knew you had a monkey sound ready uh, in the pipes ready to go. You know. Uh, then also you can, this can cause uh, balance problems because they are monkeying around with the ear. Ah, monkey sound. I just made the connection while you made a monkey there sound. There it is. Yep. There you go. So, yeah, cochlear implants, uh, an evolving technology, I'm sure, eventually will literally be a plug-and-play ear. You know, Right. Oh, that one's broken? Great. Here, I'm going to run. To, hey, could you run down to Walmart and get me another ear? Can you get me one with a little bit more bass? Right. <laughs> My mom has um, hearing aids, and they are Bluetooth connected to her phone. So she can, like, if she's in the car, she can turn down her right ear and turn up her left ear so that she can hear my dad talking. Uh, they have, like, a theater mode. <laughs> so if she's at the movie, you know, she hears the movie better. And then um, if her phone rings, she can just pick up her phone and she, she doesn't have to put it to her ear. She just talks through her implants or through her hearing aid. I thought you'd be more impressed by that. <laughs> Yeah, so she uh, runs her uh, hearing aids off of her cell phone. Nice. So now we're going to talk about noise and chemical-induced hearing loss, Chris. Do it. I've been reading a <laughs> lot. It's your turn. <laughs> no, no, no. I just, just want to feel like you're there with me. I, I am here with you. Nil. Noise and... <laughs> nil. And it affects children. Uh, <laughs> teenagers and adults who are exposed to harmful noises. Uh, it can happen only after one time if you've been around an intense impulse sound, such as an explosion, or it can be a result of continuous exposure to loud sounds over time, which is kind of what's happening to me. Uh, enough uh, loud heavy metal and going to concerts and uh, <clears throat> cranking up the volume every chance I get. Boom! It has a long-term effect, you know. 11. Uh <laughs> Uh, depending on the environment and instant, a single exposure can cause temporary decrease in hearing by damaging the hair, uh, hair cells in one's inner ear. On occasion, the chemicals in the inner ear can add nutrients to the hair cells and repair them after a while, while thereby returning hearing. However, repeated exposures to loud sounds with appropriate, without appropriate hearing protection can permanently da uh, damage these hair cells and cause a long-lasting or a lasting decrease in hearing. According to the NIDCD, National Institute. Uh, that's all I got. Uh, apparently, <laughs> one blanked out. <laughs> that's going to be the uh, national. Uh, come on, you don't know what that is. Are you googling it? No, I'm not. I just know it's off the top of my head. According to the <laughs> National Institute, debt considers deafness approximately 1.1 billion teenagers <laughs> and young adults. <laughs> Uh, are at risk for uh, nil due to unsafe listening practices. This includes use of headphones, earbuds at damaging volumes, and the failure to protect your ears at concerts, bars, and other loud places because nothing says picking up chicks like hearing protection at a bar. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> What's your sign? Baby, I like what? You. <laughs> Baby, I really like your, your hearing protection. Mm. <laughs> 
recreational activities that may increase risk factors include target shooting and hunting. Uh, that is why my left ear is not the greatest, thanks to target shooting. Uh, snowmobile riding, <clears throat> woodworking, and other hobbies. Uh, playing in a band. I played band in junior high. Did you I really? trumpet Did, and baritone. Oh, you played trumpet? Uh, and baritone, yeah. Actually, I played cornet, which is a smaller version of the trumpet. Nice. Uh-huh. And I moved to baritone because we had like 20 friggin' cornet and trumpet players, and we only had one baritone player. Oh. And the end, my band instructor was like, well, you're guaranteed at least number two seat. <laughs> <laughs> Solid. He was really cool. He goes, and he goes, for the, uh, you know, oh my for goodness. working the. What? <laughs> yeah, this is funny. <laughs> and it was very similar in like uh, how to play the notes and stuff like that. He's like, there's really no big difference. Nice. He said the worst part is going to be getting it on and off the bus because it's a much, it's like, a, it's not a tuba size, but it's not far off. Oh, nice. So uh, attending rock concerts and listening to headphones too loudly, harmful noises at home can come from lawnmowers, leaf blowers, and shop tools. I want to rock. Actually, um, this is not a sponsorship in any way, shape, or form, but I recently bought a set of Isotunes earbuds, and they are rated to, uh, these are the, they have two different kinds. They have the uh, ones that are like on a wire that hang around your neck. Nice. And then they have the individual earbuds, like, uh, and they are rated to drop uh, external noise levels by at least 22 decibels. So I got them for over at the shop when I'm forging. Nice. And then they also connect to my phone Bluetooth, uh, the Bluetooth on my phone, so I can talk on the radio. <laughs> Jesus, talk on the phone. And uh, they have external mics, so they'll cut out the external noise. So when I'm talking on the phone, people can hear me. Oh, sweet. Pretty good. Very cool. Yeah, I like them a lot. I like them enough. My, I talked my mom into getting some for her flights coming up because they're doing a bunch of trips over the next couple months. Oh, way cool. Yeah, and she can listen to stuff and uh, movies and things like that, so. So, damaging noise levels in work environments are uh, also a growing concern. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recently reported that occupational hearing loss is the most common work-related injury in the United States. Wow. Approximately 22 million uh, U.S. workers are exposed to hazardous noise levels, and an additional 9 million are exposed to ototoxic chemicals. So, this is what happens when you go down a rabbit hole. <laughs> because initially, I was just going to do this on noise-related Hearing loss or noise inst uh, instituted really. Then I thought, the hell's an ototoxic chemical? <laughs> and we got a whole other section here. <laughs> so we're going to jump to ototoxic chemicals and substances. Let's do it. Yeah. Ototoxic chemicals are classified as neurotoxicants, not neurotoxicans, <laughs> neurotoxicants. <laughs> Jesus Cochleotoxicants and vestibulotoxicants. You were on a roll today <laughs> with just the dad <laughs> jokes. <laughs> Uh, based on the part of the ear they damage. Uh, they can reach the inner ear through the bloodstream and cause uh, injury to inner ear parts of the ear and connected neural pathways. Neurotoxicants are ototoxic when they damage the neurofibers that interfere with hearing and balance. Cochleotoxicants are mainly affecting the cochlear hair cells, while the sensory receptors and oh, which are the sensory receptors and can impair your ability to hear. Vestibular toxicants affect the hair cells and the spatial orientation and balance organs. Uh, the research on ototoxicants and their interactions with noise is limited. <laughs> yeah, we need to test this. You mind, like, killing your hearing for science? 
the dose response, lowest observed effective or effect level, or the Lowell, not to be confer, uh, confer, uh, confused with the lull. Uh, the dose response, lowest observed effective level, and no observed effective level have been identified in animal experiments for only a few substances. Uh, so some of the substance classes are pharmaceuticals. We'll go into some of these a little bit more here in just a few minutes. Uh, you have the aminoglycosidic antibiotics, such as streptomycin and gentamicin, and some other antibiotics, such as tetracyclines, loop diuretics, uh, Lasix, and uh, ethacrinic acid, uh, certain analgesics, and, and antipyretics, such as uh, NSAIDs, salicylates, quinine, chloroquine, and certain antineoplastic agents, such as cisplatin and carboplatin, and bleomycin. Wow. You, you, hey, you uh, know what? You, you pat yourself on the back. That was pretty good. <laughs> that was pretty good, man. I'm not, yeah, I'm good. I almost pulled, almost pulled an adenoid on that last one. They might have pulled a muscle in your tongue or something. I'm not sure. <clears throat> uh, let's see. Solvents. Boom. Carbon disulfides and hexanes, tuline, pyxaline, ethylbenzene. And propylbenzene, styrene, methylstyrene, trichlorothylene. No, trichloroethylene is what that is. Trichloroethylene. Stumbled and lost. Chris for the assist. I'm going to, yeah, (laughs) that's it. I'm going to quit the podcast if I can't hear that word. That's all right. I carry it anyway. (laughs) Well, anybody really really knows that I'm gone. Uh, Asphyxiants, carbon monoxide, uh, hydrogen cyanide and its salts. And also tobacco smoke, just to throw that in there. Uh, nitriles. Go ahead, Chris. So, yeah. So, nitriles, you have uh, uh No, I, I can get that one. Butenin. No, wait. Butenonitrile. Butenonitrile. Pentenonitrile. Acrylonitrile. Uh, cis uh, crotononitrile and <laughs> uh, Im- it was just together one here. It's aminodipropionitrile. I think uh, dipropion is that word. Uh, dipropionitrile. Yeah, you got that, yeah. man. Imminent. Imino- so, yeah, wow. imminodipropion. Fuck it. That's the thing. Metals and compounds. Oh, I got this one. Um, mercury compounds, germanium dioxide, organic tin compounds, and lead. Nailed it. All right, moving on. So, uh, Which industries, Chris? Yeah, so which industries are more likely to have those autotoxicants? Uh, industries that use potential autotoxicants. By the way, auto in this is spelled O-T-O and then toxicant. I guess it'd be autotoxicants. I, I think auto is, is the best way to put it. Um, yeah. Like you have an otoscope, so I think Mark and I have touched on this before, but if you ever want to pass your your paramedic class, your nursing class, go take medical terminology, because you can know jack shit about an actual word, but if you know how they come up with the names, you can definitely select that correct multiple choice answer. So, so I'm listening to I'm listening to another podcast right there. They're talking about a serial killer who basically by learning terminology bluffed his way through but bluffed his way into people believing he was a doctor. Nice. Yeah, no, I mean, it's no formal training. Yeah. Just new words. 
So autotoxicant, for example. And you and I have run into this also. Patients who kind of throw you off a little bit because they know the terminology. Yeah. But you don't think they really have what they're describing. They're just really good at uh, listening to what you're saying and learning. Exactly. And then they can parrot it back. So, for example, so the word uh, OTO, uh, O-T-O, which you guys probably hear say auto. I think it might be pronounced auto, but I'm not 100% on that, so I'm not going to stake that claim. Uh, but anytime you put that OTO in front of something, that means reference to the ear. So an ototoxicant is a toxicant to the ear. An otoscope is something that looks at the ear. That is the thing the doctor sticks in your ear. So <clears throat> an otologist or otologist would be someone who, a doctor that studies the ear. So, uh, so which industries are going to carry these toxicants? Well, that's going to be uh, manufacturing, which is a pretty broad paintbrush uh, there. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, mining, uh, utilities, constructions, and like agriculture. Uh, so agriculture, you got a lot of pesticides that people are going to be spraying around. So manufacturing industry subsectors may also include uh, metal fabrication, machinery, uh, leather, um, textile and apparel, petroleum, paper, uh, chemicals, including paint, plastics, furniture related products, uh, transportation equipment like ship and boat building, electrical equipment, um, and then like solar cells. So occupational activities that often have a high noise exposure could also add synergistic effects when combined with an autotoxicant exposure, uh, like occurring in the above industries. Uh, may include uh, printing. If you have ever been in like a print room, like a place that actually just sits there and prints oh, shit all day long, holy God. Uh, painting, construction. If you think about painting, people are like, well, what's so? Like, you think paintbrush. Well, think about things like pressure sprayers. Those kind of things oh, yeah. you have uh, air compressors going off in the background all the time. Uh, construction, I don't need to explain that one. I hope I don't need to, to explain why construction is loud. If anyone has ever lived in a neighborhood that is under construction, you will get this. Um, <laughs> so especially if you're a night shifter trying to sleep during the day. Hmm. So anyway, uh, yeah. manufacturing occupations in the subsectors uh, listed above, as well as like fueling vehicles and aircrafts, uh, firefighting, weapons firing, uh, pesticide spraying, pesticide Again, spraying. that's the... Uh well, again, you're going to have the compressors. Okay, gotcha. I'm yeah. thinking of you're thinking of the, or you're in the plane and you don't wear your hearing aids. You're in the uh, biplane. Yeah. And you're just spraying it out the back. There you go. So uh, we're going to, uh, next we're going to talk about some of these uh, medications they were talking about that <laughs> are more prescriptive. Yeah. Uh, or just, uh, so your loop diuretics, which would be like your uh, furosemides or Lasix. Mm -hmm. uh, and the reason, sorry, oh, sorry go ahead. And the reason they're actually called a loop diuretic, I don't think it's going to get into this, but uh, the name loop diuretic actually comes from uh, in your kidney. If you go back and listen to our renal episode, uh, your kidney has a bunch of filtration cells in it called nephrons. And in that nephron, they have a loop called the loop of Henle. And it is just a little part of that filtration cell. And um, it is a spot where... If your body's going to get rid of fluid, this is where fluid would permeate through the nephron and make it into the kidney. So a loop diuretic impacts the nephron's ability to retain fluid or rather not filter it out. And it causes more fluid to be lost through the kidneys. Anyway, mm -hmm. and then you pee it out. Some people call it, uh, a lot of times you hear people call uh, Lasix or uh, those as their water pill. Because yeah. it makes them pee more. Sure does. Uh, so certain types of diuretics, uh, the loop diuretic furosemide or Lasix is associated with autotoxicity. Particularly when bait, when dosed, and imagine this, 240 milligrams per hour. Now, I don't know what the protocol was when you became a paramedic, Chris. <laughs> but, um, yeah, there was a time where <laughs> if we had a patient who was in congestive heart failure, patients in uh, CHF, uh, which I believe we cover in our cardiovascular, 
uh, episode, they can't have an excess of fluid because it'll back up into their lungs. Yeah. And so they're given a diuretic to make them urinate so that they don't get that backup of fluid. We would, as a matter of protocol, give two times their daily dosage. But that's what that when I started, it was two times their highest daily dosage. So if they took 20 milligrams in the morning and 40 milligrams at night, we'd give them 80 milligrams right off the bat. When I did it, it was like, when we started, it was like uh, just two times their daily dosage. It's like if they, so they'd so be they six, 120 milligrams. milligrams. Right. Wow. You know, or we, I mean, we find back then we'd find patients on, you know, 140, 150, 160 milligrams a day. Oh, yeah. So, so now we're giving them like th- another 300 to 400 cc's. We carried 600 milligrams of lidocaine on the truck back then. I'm not lidocaine, but Lasix. Yeah. Say, and, wow, lidocaine. I think you read that one wrong, Mark. I think. Yeah, I, I did. <laughs> but uh, I have some self-reporting to do. Okay. On that note, we're going to go back and review some of Mark's charts. Right. Uh, <laughs> no, but I mean, so we're giving them just monster amounts. And then they started doing, and this is, I mean, our protocols are put forth by physicians. And then somebody went. That seems like a lot. And uh, if they if they do not take Lasix, they get like 20 milligrams. 40. If they do take Lasix, you give them 40. That's right. As comparison to when we were giving excess of 300 milligrams in a dose. <laughs> and the problem is, is that uh, Lasix depletes potassium. So you're giving them this, this bolus of Lasix. Mm-hmm creates a whole bunch of problems down the line. And potassium anyway. potassium is a problem. I mean, we'll get back on track here. But potassium is a problem, though, because we've talked about this in many of our episodes, is that especially your heart uses a sodium-potassium pump uh, to, to mm-hmm. cause contractions, and you need a balance of sodium and potassium. So if you take away potassium, you can get into dysrhythmias that can be lethal. So mm-hmm. Andy moves it. So uh, let's see here. Um the related compound ethrocrinic acid has a higher association with ototoxicity. I've never heard of ethrocrinic acid before. Oh, ethrocrinic acid? Yeah, absolutely. I use that to uh, etch the diamond plating on the ambulances. Oh, yeah. okay. Uh, it's also used for patients, uh, only in patients with sulfa allergies, so they can't take the Lasix. Uh, diuretics are thought to alter the ionic gradient within the stria vascularis. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, chemo, uh, chemotherapeutic er- uh, agents, platinum coating chemotherapeutic agents such as cisplatin or carboplatin are associated with cochleotoxicity characterized by progressive high frequency hearing loss with or without tinnitus, which is the ringing in the ears. Uh, with the exact amount, uh, with the exact mechanism, mechanism of cisplatin, good lord, with the exact mechanism of cisplatin autotoxicity is not known. The drug is understood to damage multiple regions of the cochlea, causing death of the outer hair cells, as well as damage to the spiral ganglion neurons and cells of the stria vascularis. You are nailing words. I'm kind of. I'm doing at least by my second run out. <laughs> I mean, enough for this podcast <laughs> anyway. Uh, <laughs> Clearing that hurdle. Uh, antiseptics and disinfectants. Uh, topical skin pre- preparations such as chlorhexidine and ethyl alcohol have the potential to be autotoxic should they enter the inner ear through the round window membrane. Now, if they come in through the square window membrane, they're fine. But, totally yeah, fine. Yeah. It's the round yeah, window no membrane. Sorry. I hear even the oval <sighs> window membrane is also not great. Uh, that's a case-by-case basis. From what yeah, I, I mean, definitely round window membrane, bad. Yeah. That's bad. Yeah. But triangular, fine. Yeah. You know, pent- pentagonal, fine. I, well, okay, I would debate that that's fine. I'm going to say comparatively, you're right, but I would not call it fine. Well, as opposed to like the octagonal, 
window membrane. The octag- you're right. The octagonal is much closer yeah. to round. By that time, you have so many sides that it practically looks like a circle anyway. <laughs> you can't protect them all, you know? Uh, Why do you this people potential listen to was- this? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but I'm really glad that they yeah. do. Yeah. You know. Uh, this potential was first noted after a small percentage of patients undergoing uh, maringal- maringoplasty operations experienced severe sensorineural neural hearing loss. It was found that in all operations involving this complication, the preoperative sterilization was done with the chlorhexidine. So let's stop doing that is what I'm Knock it off. There have been links uh, to the use of these drugs and being exposed to chemicals at work, coupled with high noise levels during the exposures and an increase in the levels of damage. So uh, while on medications uh, or and... While being on these medications, you need to be very aware of being exposed to loud noises either at work or other places because the uh, they work in uh, – god damn it. Fell apart there at the end. Uh, the, if you're on the medications and you're exposed to loud noises, it can increase the chance of the hearing loss. Yeah. So treatment for this, uh, there's, there's not going to be a specific treatment uh, available, but uh, – or there may not be one, rather. But the withdrawal of autotoxic drug may be warranted when the consequences of doing so are less severe than those of the autotoxicity. So co-administration of antioxidants may also limit the autotoxic effect. Uh, autotoxic monitoring during exposure is recommended by the American Academy of Audiology uh, to allow for proper detection and possible prevention or rehabilitation of the hearing loss through a cochlear implant or a hearing aid. Monitoring can be completed through performing uh, autoacoustic emissions testing or high-frequency audiometry. Uh, <laughs> audiometry. Uh, audiometry. That sounds better. Audiometry. Uh, successful monitoring includes a baseline test before or soon after exposure to the autotoxicity. Follow-up testing is then completed in increments after the exposure throughout the cessation of treatment. Uh, cessation, by the way, means stop. I think most people know that, but I'm dumb, so I assume everyone else is too. Uh, anyway, so shifts in hearing status are monitored and relayed to the prescribing physician to make treatment decisions. So... Uh, I think we're going to be able to wrap this up with tinnitus. So tinnitus, tinnitus is the perception of noise. And and I actually, I'm really glad this is in here because a lot of people actually suffer from this. So right, right. That's why I wanted to get it. Yeah. And it's not to be confused with tinnitus, which is when you could do something tonight. Exactly. When Mm -hmm. you do that tinnitus tonight. Anyway, (laughs) and usually do it with somebody else. Absolutely. Because you can't really do it by yourself if it's tonight. Yeah. What's going on tonight? Us. Anyway, uh, tinnitus is the perception of noise or ringing in the ears. A common problem, tinnitus affects about 15 to 20% of people. Tinnitus isn't a condition itself. It's a symptom of an underlying condition, like age-related hearing loss or an ear injury or a circulatory system disorder. So although it's bothersome, tinnitus usually isn't a sign of something serious. Although it, but it will drive you friggin' bad. Again. Yeah. Although it can I worsen knew, with. I, knew, I had a friend when I was growing up. The only time he could get the ringing to stop is when he would thump his head against a wall. So he would literally just sit there at night and just boom, 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 boom over and Damn. over again because that's in those periods when he hit his head. That was the only time he get the tinnitus to stop. Wow. 
Uh, yeah. It can also worsen, worsen, uh, worsen with age. Mm-hmm. Uh, for many people, tinnitus can also improve with treatment. So, uh, and treatment, by the way, recommend treatment is not thumping your head against a wall. I'm just going to throw that out there. No, not at all. So treating this was a, it was the seventies. They really didn't know much about it. Yeah, right. fair enough. So treating an unidentified underlying cause will sometimes help. So with uh, other treatments, uh, other treatments will reduce or mask the noise, making tinnitus less noticeable. So symptoms: tinnitus involves the sensation of hearing sound when no external sound is present. Uh, tinnitus symptoms may include... <laughs> I like the pause at the end there, so there was no external sound. <laughs> it took me a little bit. Um, oh, I think... Hang on, I'm going to start that one over. Uh, tinnitus involves the sensation of hearing sound when no external sound is present. So tinnitus symptoms may include uh, these types of phantom noises in your ears. So a ringing, a buzzing, a roaring... A clicking, a hissing, a humming. Uh, The phantom noise may vary in pitch from a low roar to a high squeal, and you may hear it in one or both ears. And in some cases, the sound could be so loud, it can interfere with your ability to concentrate or even hear an external sound. So tinnitus may be present all the time, and it might come and go. There are two kinds. Imagine how irritating that would be. Oh, God, yeah, I know. It'd be like talking to you. Um, (laughs) Sorry, that was just a gut punch. Uh... (laughs) And you're ugly. I don't know. I just got <laughs> So there are two kinds of tinnitus. There's subjective tinnitus. That's tinnitus that only you can hear. Hold up. Okay. This is the most common. I, I really want to see where this goes. So subjective tinnitus. It's the tinnitus that only you can hear, not the one you share with your friends. This is the most common type of tinnitus, and it can be caused by ear problems in your outer, middle, or inner ear. It can also be caused by problems with your hearing uh, nerves. Or part of your brain that interrupts the nerve signals as, or interrupts, interprets, that interprets the nerve signals as sound. There you go. It was unnecessary. I got it. (laughs) We're all set. I'm sorry. That was actually, I thought the same thing as soon as it came out of my mouth. Yeah, exactly. There you go, Chris. There you go, buddy. I felt like you were like, I was on my bike with training wheels and you were giving me that push and you're like, come on, buddy, you got (laughs) it. It really wasn't. It was really just a knee jerk reaction. I shouldn't have done. So I'm going to say one thing is, is that I love my son but he is the only child I've ever met that can crash a bike on training wheels. And I don't mean like he hit a tree. I mean, he just managed to make it fall over. Just dump yeah. over. Anyway, so objective tonight is... Have you tried putting him on the front also? <laughs> At that point, it's just a pedal car, Mark. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so objective tinnitus is the tinnitus that your doctor can hear when he or she does an examination. This is rare. Is a rare type of tinnitus, and it may be caused by a blood vessel problem uh, or like a middle ear bone condition or muscle contractions. So uh, common causes of tinnitus. So in many people, tinnitus is caused by one of these conditions. There's age-related hearing loss. For a lot of people, hearing is going to worsen with age. Um, just ask Mark. Usually starting around age huh? 60. Exactly. Uh <laughs> hearing loss can cause tinnitus, and the medical term for that type of hearing loss is called uh, presbycusis. Nailed it. <laughs> I don't think I did. Uh, exposure to loud noise. Uh, so loud noises such as those. Oops, I've been twirling my phone in my hand and pressing a shitload of buttons. Hey, for any of our friends that just got a weird text. 
<laughs> I do apologize. Uh, so anyway, uh, loud noises such as those from heavy equipment, chainsaws, and firearms are common sources of noise-related hearing loss. Uh, portable music devices like MP3 players or iPods can also uh, cause noise-related hearing loss if played loudly for long periods. Tonight is caused by short-term exposure, uh, like attending a loud concert. It's usually going to go away. Uh, both short and long-term exposure to loud sound can also cause permanent damage, however. I will say, growing up, my friends and I would rate the uh, how good a con- concert was by how long we had ringing in our ears afterwards. Wow. In retrospect, that may have been a bo- <clears throat> uh, poor scale to use, but, you know. Maybe that's why you don't review music now, Mark. Maybe that's why you became a paramedic. <laughs> yeah, you know, I like to be close enough to the uh, amps that you could actually feel it in your chest. There you go. Uh, so earwax blockage earwax protects your ear canal by trapping dirt and slowing the growth of bacteria when too much earwax accumulates however it becomes too hard to wash away naturally causing hearing hearing loss or irritation of the eardrum uh, which can also lead to tinnitus and then ear bone changes Uh, stiffening of the bones in your middle ear uh, autosclerosis may affect your hearing and cause tinnitus this condition caused by abnormal bone growth tends to run in families so, uh, blood vessel disorders that are linked to tinnitus. Take it away, Mark. In rare cases, tinnitus can be caused by blood vessel disorder. Can it, Mark? This type of tinnitus, tinnitus is called pulsatile tinnitus. Thum, 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 thum. Uh, causes, inclu- uh, causes include atherosclerosis with age, a buildup of cholesterol and other deposits. Major blood vessels close to your middle and inner ear can lose some of their elasticity. The ability to flex and expand slightly with each heartbeat. That blood, uh, this causes blood flow to become more forceful, making it easier for your, hear, your ear to detect the beats. You can also generally hear this type of tinnitus in both ears. Uh, head and neck tumors. A tumor that presses on the blood vessel in your head or neck. Your vascular neoplasm can cause tinnitus with, along with other symptoms. High blood pressure, hypertension, and factors that increase high blood pressure, such as stress, alcohol, caffeine can make tinnitus more noticeable. Turbulent blood flow, narrowing or kinking of a neck artery or a vein in your neck, your jugular vein or your carotid artery can cause a turbulent, irregular blood flow leading to tinnitus. Then you also get uh, malformation of capillaries, a condition called arteriovenous malformation or AVM. Abnormal connections between the arteries and veins can result in tinnitus. This type of tinnitus generally occurs only in one ear. Uh, treating an underlying health condition to treat tinnitus, your doctor will first try to avi- uh, identify an underlying uh, treatable condition that may be causing your symptoms. If tinnitus is due to he- a health condition, your doctor may be able to take steps to reduce the noise. Uh, the first one, <laughs> earwax removal. Seems like a straightforward answer personally, but you know. Let's see. Uh, you got a lot of earwax built up in there. We're going to try on these antihypertensives. <laughs> Let's see if that fixes them. Uh, hey, Doc, I got an idea. I heard about heard this on the podcast. How about the earwax removal? Uh, who's the doctor here? Okay. <laughs> Treating a blood press, uh, blood press, blood vessel condition. Underlying vascular conditions may require medication, surgery, or other treatments to address the problem. And then changing your medication. If a medication you're taking appears to be the cause of tinnitus. Your doctor may recommend stopping or reducing the drug, switching to a different medication. Uh, noise suppression. In some cases, white noise can help suppress the sound so that it's less bothersome. Your doctor may suggest using an electronic device to suppress noise. Devices include a white noise machine. These devices can produce sim- uh, 
simulated environmental sounds, which uh, such as falling rain or ocean waves. I don't really like these. I, I do like listening to something at night. Um, it's going to be weird. I listen to Australian police agencies on a scanner, which fun fact, I was, uh, my family was out the coast, uh, for a family weekend and I had this playing in the room I was in and my sister woke up the next morning and she thought there was something going on with the police out in front of the house because my room was at the front of the house. And so she could hear this police, uh, traffic through the wall cause it was fairly thin wall. And so later on, she goes, yeah, I thought there was something going on outside. <laughs> um, they're often effective for removing, uh, for treatment for tinnitus. You might want to try a white noise machine with pillow speakers to help you sleep. Uh, fans, humidifiers, dehumidifiers, and air conditioners in the bedroom may also help cover internal noises at night. Hearing aids. They can, these can be especially helpful if you have hearing problems as well as tinnitus. And then masking devices worn in the ear and similar to hearing aids, these devices produce continuous low-level white noise that suppress tinnitus symptoms. And then tinnitus retraining, a wearable device that delivers individually programmed tonal music to mask specific frequencies of the tinnitus you experience. Over time, this technique may, customize, may accustom you to the tinnitus, thereby, thereby helping you not to focus on it. Counseling is also an often component uh, component of tinnitus training. So, medications. There are really no drugs that can cure tinnitus. But in some cases, these may help the severity of symptoms or complications. Possible medications include tricyclic antidepressants such as amitriptyline or nortriptyline. Uh, they've been uh, used with some success. However, these medications are generally used only for severe tinnitus as they can cause more troublesome side effects, including dry mouth, blurred vision, constipation, and heart problems. And then uh, alprazolam, or Xanax, may help reduce tinnitus symptoms, but the side effects can include drowsiness and nausea, which is why a lot of people take it when they go on an airplane, and it can also become habit-forming. So, yeah, that's all I have on hearing problems, man. Yeah, boom, that's two episodes worth, and this last one even went a little, yeah. bit, went a little long. Yeah, uh, I think because uh, we had a long ch chat session at the beginning of it. Too, oh, we so. did but that. Well, that we started at ten minutes <laughs> but, is when we actually started recording. So, or actually started getting yeah. to the show. So we're we're an hour tenish by now. <clears throat> yeah. So yeah, that's what I have, my man. You have any other questions about hearing loss? <sighs> Fuck no. No, I think I'm full of hearing loss. Yeah. So. Um, thank you all for listening. If you have any other questions, please email us or contact us. Uh, we love the fact that uh, y'all are listening. It really. Is amazing to us. We have some other friends who have podcasts and we tell them the numbers we're getting and they're like, holy shit. So, uh, yeah, if you want to contact us, we love the messages. Uh, email is definitely the best way because it's the one I check the most frequently, most frequently, but I like messages on all forms. If you want to get a hold of us on Twitter, we're at MedSide Stuff, M-E-D-S-I-D-E-S-T-U-F-F. -E on Facebook, we're at Medical Stuff. And on Instagram, we're at Medical Stuff 52. Boom. Question mark. Yes. <laughs> and if you'd like to send us an email, please do. It's going to be medsidestuff at yahoo.com. So, uh, yes, thank you all for listening. If you enjoy the show, please tell everybody you know about it and give us a good review. Five-star reviews on all the platforms help us get on lists that help other people find us. So yeah. have a great week. We will talk to you again next week. And unless you have anything else, Chris, I think I'm going to go for a toast. toast.